Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Barry Gilbert. Born in Kingston, Ontario, Barry graduated in biology from Queen's University. He earned MS and PhD degrees in zoology from Duke University. After a stint as a provincial wildlife research biologist, he joined the faculty of Utah State University, where he taught courses on animal behavior, wildlife management, and endangered species. Research interests include human-wildlife interactions, especially the three species of North American bears. Since retiring, Dr. Gilbert has focused on bringing ecological insights to conservation of threatened species and habitat. Welcome to the podcast, Barry. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. I'm really glad you're here because I've been wanting to talk more about bears for a while and the most I did was I had a recent interaction with one and I did a little kind of one-off little sort of episode about it, but you are an expert and definitely want to pick your brain about this and hear what you have to say about bears in the wild. So, so let's just start with a, a simple, from the beginning here, why, why do bears matter? Why as human beings should we care about the life of a grizzly bear or a black bear? Well, in uh, North America and around the world, of course, we have brown bears or grizzlies, and uh, they were uh, almost eliminated in the United States, uh, similar to the bison or buffalo. Uh, cattlemen, settlers, whatever, were uh, just happy to uh, kill, poison, trap uh, grizzly bears. Uh, you know, in the last 150 years, there were tens of hundreds of thousands of sheep in the Rockies and surrounding areas. And uh, grizzlies uh, were a threat, of course, to uh, the survival of those. So the hatred of bears has gone on a long time. Uh, they don't injure or kill many people at all. You can look at a whole bunch of other things, bee stings, snakes, uh, automobiles are killing people in droves and uh, grizzly bears are not. They're uh, in relatively small numbers in wild areas. Now, having said that, we need to behave such that we don't attract them and become a problem because they're smarter than your average dog. And uh, when they find rich food, they're into it. And they got the uh, strength and power, as we all know, to take it. They take meals away from other bears, and they'll take your horse feed or your garbage or whatever away from you. And uh, they're a difficult species to manage because they're big, they're powerful. I wouldn't call them especially aggressive. They're not. But if you run into them at a close range, you'll get a defensive response. People call it an attack and there's often a mauling that follows, uh, but they're not being aggressive. They're just defending themselves. And uh, you find yourself uh, within there, uh, if you like personal space as I did once in Yellowstone 40 years ago and got, uh, my uh, scalp and half my face ripped off and I was lucky to survive, but it wasn't a grisly predation sequence or an attack. It was a, a mistake on my part of uh, assuming that 9,200 feet, there wouldn't be a grizzly bear over the hill. 
and uh, in that case there was. So the message that comes from that is that uh, people have to be alert in wild country uh, and not stumble on a grizzly bear. And I think we can get along very well with grizzly bears, even more so now in places like Yellowstone where they're becoming habituated, but not food conditioned to people. And you can get photographs of them. Unfortunately, people rush up within 20, 30 feet and get their little brownie out and get a picture of a 700 pound bear, which is uh, pretty dumb. I, I chewed out a woman in, on the road in Yellowstone a couple of years ago for just that kind of behavior. But the bear could care less. It had seen thousands of people and was on its way across the road to some place to feed. Well, it seems like we have a very interesting relationship with bears in this country. It's like both the fear and the love at the same time, right? Yes. Yep. And uh, of course, we've gone through the whole trophy hunting era where people got their rocks on, if you like, uh, to kill a big uh, furry animal. But, you know, the grizzly bears is closest, one of the closest uh as with the black bear, closest animals to our dogs. They're closely related genetically. And uh, in places like Yosemite, they behave like great big dogs, but they're uh, hiker food raiding most of the time up there because people don't take the precautions that they need to. But they're an iconic species in North America and the wilderness would not be wilderness without grizzly bears. Right. Well, both ecologically speaking, of course, right, because they provide all sorts of benefits to the ecosystems they evolved in. But also there's this, I don't know if it's a mythology, but it, it's a symbolism around them. They symbolize the last of the wild in North America. That's right. And, and especially with uh, Native Americans, you'll find much uh, learned information and myths and a variety of things uh, about them. They respect them. They uh, worship them. They're kind of the sacred symbol, as I understand it. I'm a little short on their uh, personal views. They live in a very different world than you and I do, uh, being the products of the, like industrial America. Uh, but I, I, I like your point about their role in the ecosystem, because for years I've studied uh, Brown bears in uh, Alaska, Brooks Camp, where uh, some 40 to 60 bears uh, mill around with 500 people on a little stream, and the bears are there to catch salmon. And it turns out that the bears are a tremendous vehicle for taking uh, salmon nutrients into the forest. Some people say, you know, these are salmon forests, and the bear is one of the big linkages. And if we don't have, uh, if you like, historical numbers for those ecological functions, then we don't, we've broken a big piece of the ecosystem apart. And uh, bears and salmon are one way that the nutrients, the ocean get back up into the high country. And uh, when we put dams uh, against the salmon and kill the bears, then we've uh, torn that web of life apart. And it's a, uh, it's a gift to us. The salmon come from the ocean. <laughs> They're little care packages that come up into the 
into the forest and the bears being large and moving long distances take the salmon nutrients much farther than say a river otter or gulls and, and bald eagles would. So their size and strength and mobility is really important. Yeah, I learned about that a while ago and was surprised. So basically we all know that, we don't maybe all know, but forests are nothing without soil. So the trees need the soil. And what does the soil need? It needs nutrients. And so that's, it's basically the, the bears are fertilizing the soil in that way and also from their other end as well. <laughs> Plenty of yes, fertilization. And, uh, I talked to a forester when I was uh, still employed at Utah State teaching, and uh, he said that the amount of nutrient that comes from salmon is about the equivalent of what a uh, forester would, would put on a forest if he wanted to get maximum growth. <laughs> and on along uh, salmon streams uh, in British Columbia coast and, in, and uh, in Alaska, if you look at the growth of Sitka spruce and western hemlock, they grow about 30 to 40% faster and larger on a stream, along a stream that has salmon versus one that doesn't have salmon. So that tells you how much nutrient is being uh, put into the, into the forest. Yep. And, and that's important. And currently, you know, uh, we capture salmon on the ocean and ship them off, if you like, to San Francisco. Well, we're losing those nutrients. I'm not against commercial fishing, but in the past, the native people on streams and the bears circulated the nutrients locally. And that maintained over millennia, the uh, health of the forests. It's no accident that the rainforests on the coast are as huge as they are and as magnificent as they are. They wouldn't be that way if it weren't for bears and people. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's all interconnected, as we know. And I think this really hits it home even more. I mean, there's so many reasons, of course, to protect bears, just their intrinsic right to exist. But other than that, their essential role in the ecosystem. And what I think is really interesting about the Native American view of bears, and I'm not an expert on this, but I'm a little bit familiar. So they definitely have that healthy fear of it, of a, of a large animal that if it wants to, rarely does, it can do damage. So they have that respect and fear, but they don't really seem to have turned it into a hatred like the frontiersmen and a lot of folks these days, which I think maybe ties into ranching concerns. So they don't like yes. any of their their stock being preyed upon, which is my understanding is, uh, cause I was looking a lot into wolves. The number one animal that preys on livestock are actually dogs. <laughs> so people's yeah. dogs, that's like number yeah. one. And then weather, that's that's the, okay. I think the biggest prey. Yeah. And if you look at sheep, they die from diseases and being frozen to the ground and all that sort of thing. I, I did a little study of uh, sheep when I was up in Alberta and it was amazing that uh, Carnivores were so far down the list, but of course they're uh, a bet noir. They're easy to focus on, and uh, ranchers and farmers carry guns, and they think, of course, uh, the only good coyote is a dead coyote. So uh, that's not a very healthy attitude. If you, it's always a paradox to me that people talk about the Rockies in the West and how fabulous it is, and then they turn around and they're putting roads through it all and killing off grizzly bears. It's so uh, contradictory. 
Uh, is. You can't put the two together, you know? Yeah. Well, the Westerners love the wild land, but mm. when you have uh, overgrazing too many cattle on grazing leases in the Forest Service, and maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, the protection that's needed uh, in some places where there's connectivity between say the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and parts to the west in Idaho or north going up toward the northern continental divide ecosystem or even south, there's a new uh, group called the uh, Yellowstone to Uintas that are trying is trying to protect uh, a corridor down through uh, public land and they're they're trying to halt uh, badly designed uh, phosphate mines and they're trying to reduce the impacts of uh, of cattle on grazing land and uh, it's important to have co connectivity through to new areas of wildland it's possible in 50 years we'll have grizzly bears all down the wasatch to uh, colorado there's a linkage there as long as we keep it wild Right. And it's public land, so it isn't belong to self-interested uh, ranchers who are paying a dollar thirty a animal unit month or something like this, about a tenth of what people pay in other places. That's something that the Forest Service needs to get at, and they need to improve their enforcement uh, of the Endangered Species Act for grizzly bears. For sure. Well, so these are large animals, and that means they require large tracts of land. So that's, it's right. about ecosystem protection. That's the cause that I care most about, that I feel like really addresses a lot of the underlying issues is protection of basically public lands. It would be nice for us to stop seeing the public-private divide and to not just be like, well, we can't do anything about private lands. But right now we have public lands that are in the public trust. And we have this idea of uh, multiple use, which th there's a flawed concept in that, of course, right? So the concept of multiple use from Forest Service is that we're using it for different things. We're using it for wildlife, okay. We're using it for water storage and okay. Recreation, all right, mostly okay. You know, extraction, hunting, like, whoa, wait a second. Those ones take away from the other ones, right? So right. arguably- Absolutely. So that's yeah. that's the the problem inherent, I think, in public lands, which is why I think more protection and, and stricter protections are necessary. And like you said, we actually have to acquire more landscape for connectivity. So it's not just these little museum islands. That's, that's right. Place. Yeah. And tokenism just doesn't work, you know, with a population that's increasing like the United States and Canada, if if we don't set aside more national parks and protected land, then what we get you and I individually is less and less access because there's more and more logging, logging roads and developments of all kinds, summer homes, all these sorts of things. And what that we're doing is squeezing the amount of public land that each of us has individually. Every time the population doubles, we have half the land because we're not increasing the amount of uh, public land, protected land at the same rate that the population's growing. So we're turning the West, if you like, into a form of Europe where they have little patches, if you're lucky, yep. of the wild land. 
Yep, there are some aspects that are improving here in Colorado. We're getting, well, wolves are coming in. Uh, they're, they're, we're actually going to be doing apparently a reintroduction of wolves, but they've also been coming in on their own from the north. And then there's the Mexican gray wolf that has come in. There, the uh, Forest Service and uh, all the other entities involved with that Fish and Wildlife Service are frankly being pretty half-assed about the protection of it. Uh, at least they're yes. just... Yeah, they got to amp, amp up the protection and get serious about it. You know, yeah. I love your depiction of the multiple use. I, I had a dean who was actually a, a, a rancher type of guy from Texas, but he said, you know, the multiple use concept is really flawed because what you have is a priority section and the Forest Service is in the tender and the other things are worked in but it's often word magic. It's word magic that recreation counts and, and wildlife count because if you have a herd of elk and then you've got five uh, ranchers with leases, guess who's gonna be harmed? It'll be the elk every time because the, uh, the cattle are, are over grazing in many cases. They're ca causing the streams to uh, to erode, you've got E. coli floating down. Many of our, our places, like in Colorado, uh, they should we should be protecting watersheds. Seattle has watersheds that nobody can go on because it's too important to have uh, potable water. You don't want to have to have all kinds of filtration for things like cattle diseases. You know so. We, uh, we've got a long way to go and the Forest Service needs to uh, pull their pants up and, uh, and get more protection for endangered species. So, and, so, so well, I was going to say it's up to the public. It's up right. to all of us to write letters and show up and uh, defend what we, uh, we value. Right. They're public servants and uh, serving the public in general. They have a public trust to look after the land in an ecologically sustainable way uh, and putting biodiversity up there. Yes, I totally agree with that. And it seems as if the majority of the public is on our side. What I'm seeing as an issue is that basically it's like the, the, squeaky, the squeaky oil gets the grease concept. So basically what we hear is most of the people who are screaming about Oh, you know, we don't want wolves, for instance, here in Colorado. So, like, so that's what gets out there more. It's a lot easier to speak out about the negative, as in, like, we don't want this thing, than it is to to advocate for the positive or something that might already be moving forward. So, I fear what's happening is, yeah, your average person would be like, you have a problem with bear, with grizzly bear coming back? No, but the, here's the special interest groups, and they're pretty loud, and it's easy for, to get people riled up around saying no to something. So, how yes. do we get how do we encourage people to say yes to something? Yes to yeah. more protection. Well, it's a trick. You're talking about changing culture, which is one of the hardest things to change. Yep. But the more you point to natural ecosystems and places they can take their children to see all the native animals, uh, wolves in the right place could be a huge attraction. It's amazing to go to Yellowstone up to Lamar Valley 
and see the people that build their lives around observing and photographing wolves. I mean, they can tell you the last time Susie had mated with Joe, you know, they know them by, by name. So uh, those that like to emphasize the economic aspects uh, can see the wolf and the grizzly bear as, uh, as catalysts for local uh, economic interests. And for sure. those are the ones that drive the politicians, you know, if you try to stop a a development inside Yellowstone Park, you'll get screaming from all the gateway communities like crazy because they're taking a buck when those people go through. Yep. No news there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's definitely clear that study after study shows that tourism, ecotourism, whatever you want to call it, is far greater a buck bringer than hunting or other well hunting hunting does bring in a lot of money that's unfortunate and and then yeah these, but, these... but uh josh uh grizzly bear hunting does not this has been looked good at in good point in uh in british columbia and there's a lot of money from hunting uh ungulates big right. game right. uh sheep uh, goats uh elk deer caribou right. but uh, the hunting side never they always talk about the mat the gross uh income from hunting. They don't talk about the income from hunting bears. And in, in British Columbia, uh, the NGOs have raised enough money. They're buying out these guide outfitters. So they're protecting huge areas, thousands and thousands of square miles of, uh, of bear habitat. And they basically shut down the hunting. Because yep. uh, the, the hunter guides can switch from bringing hunters in to bringing photographers in and they're making it like bandits right yep that seems the clear way forward of course yeah there are some economic interests but i think yeah like you said they're overstated and most of the aspect around hunting yeah is like you say deer and elk and stuff like that because unfortunately these wildlife agencies they get their money from that which compromises them a hundred percent and yeah and then they actually go after certain predators because oh our our elk numbers aren't high enough it's like well <laughs> it's not because of the predators it's because of the amount of hunting it's like well we have to kill off some predator to allow more hunting and uh you talk to the biologists involved with those organizations and they know what's going on but then you talk to the people who are in charge of making stuff happen and they are definitely very compromised it's absolutely it's you're, you're quite right there it's the cultural thing though ultimately of course there are folks who do the ranching and, you know, let's say go back to frontier time. You're out there, you're trying to survive. You do, you have seven, 17 sheep, and then there's a bear coming in. You can always, you can almost make sense of why they found that threatening at the time. Yes. But that's not the world we're living in anymore. And yeah. almost always they are provided with, there are agencies and, and organizations that provide ranchers who get their stock preyed upon, they, they pay them. So, right. right. It's not Montana's really... done this for quite a while, like compensation programs for the odd uh, bear wolf kill. Yeah, and I can see, you know, if you have a grizzly bear that's uh, consistently killing livestock on private land, right. well, maybe that one has to go because if you don't take it out, then you have a big public relations problem for the rest of the grizzlies. That yeah, that kind of feeds the hatred. Sure. So. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's clearly a balance. But if we're interested in red meat, uh, places in the southeast United States produce far more 
uh, beef than the semi-arid countries in the West. You know, we're really cranking along with a outdated. We have this mythology of the small farmer and his family that are living on a cattle ranch. Well, you can't send your kids to college and buy new half-ton trucks on the back of cattle grazing because the price of beef just isn't that much, you know? Yeah. It's not economical, really, an argument here. It's a cultural argument. It's about people who have a certain way of life or lifestyle that they want to preserve. And then it, there are these ingrained prejudices against certain creatures. So it's I, I've looked into this a lot, and we don't have to harp on this too much, but because I don't think that going to necessarily change the minds of a lot of the folks who maybe live in rural communities and have these biases. But there are plenty of folks out there. You might look at them like, oh, that's your typical uh, cowboy hat wearing uh, bear hating guy. And then you find out, no, he loves the animals and actually yeah. does want to protect yeah. them. So it's not just hippies. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a good example of that. The people that are north of Yellowstone up Tom, Tom Minor Basin they've got together that many of them have cattle, but uh, they're really interested in looking after the grizzly bears. They're right next to Yellowstone Park and the bears are coming across their land. And I have a friend that's uh, now dead, uh, Charlie Russell, who had a cattle ranch with his family outside Waterton Park in Alberta. And he said he had watched uh, his cattle rest on the ground when a grizzly bear walked through the herd, and he said if he rode through the herd on his horse, those cattle would be jumping off the ground. Yep. <laughs> so they never shot any bears. In fact, his father, Andy Russell, was quite a photographer and spent the last part of his life photographing wildlife and bears in Alaska and, and Alberta. So they, will, they can get along. And uh, mm -hmm. I hope I don't come across on your program here as, as a guy that's anti-ranching. Those people control a lot of grizzly bear habitat and elk habitat. Uh -huh. And uh, a lot of them are feeding elk when they wouldn't have to, you know, and they can also tolerate bears. And I think that's grizzly bears. I think that's coming. Sure. Yeah. There are definitely plenty of folks who live in that world who at the same time have more progressive beliefs in terms of wildlife and that should be encouraged. But we also, the rest of us who already believe this stuff, if we don't speak up, no one hears us. And when you have, you know, you might just have half a dozen folks who come to a town meeting who are screaming about bears. Well, politicians, if they have an option between, well, they have to listen to a screaming people or people who silently support bears, they're going to, they're going to choose the screaming you know, anti-bear yeah. people every time. That's just how politics yeah. work. But so, uh, I yeah. think it is changing. Uh, my Good. friend Doug Peacock mm -hmm. uh, gives talks in various places. He has an organization called Save the Yellowstone Grizzly Bear. And you talk about a drawing card. When Doug Peacock comes to town, people can't wait to, to get to him, you know, yes. and they want to hear his message. And they're mostly young people. They're not old geezers like me. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, and for folks don't, who don't know, uh, Doug Peacock is is thought to be the inspiration for Hey Duke in Ed Abbey's fiction. So uh, we've done some podcasts about Ed Abbey, so some of our listeners are sure, familiar with that. Sure, I, I know well, Doug was part of the group that uh, buried Ed out in the desert. You know. Yep. Yep. Exactly. People but he's doing. Out. 
he's been doing excellent work around grizzly bear. That's been his focus for the last several decades. And absolutely. Yeah. He's so, a, he's a spark plug. Certainly. So let's talk about where these grizzly are. So I live in Colorado. They used to be here. Some people say they might still be here. It doesn't seem like they're here. Um, and I don't think they are. Um, they're, they're obviously, so I've been to Montana when I was about 18. It was one of the first backpacking trips I ever went on. And my dad took me on it. We went cross country. We actually went from New York state where I was living over through Canada and then down back into the States. And so for the first backpacking trip, we went into Glacier National Park, which is, uh, that's, that's a pretty hardcore first backpacking trip. We went into the Bob Marshall wilderness area. And wow. so grizzly habitat for about five days and I have to admit, I, I definitely was nervous the whole time. We didn't see any grizzly, but I, I sensed a presence. And, and the only other time that I had been in grizzly habitat, so I've been in black bear habitat a lot. I, I go out in the wilderness every single week. Um, I, I hike all, all the time. I've been lots of places far off, seen plenty of black bear. But so the only other time where I, I was in uh, in the Cascades, North Cascades in Washington. And I knew, I was like, some of these areas I think might have grizzly. I don't know. All I know is it's, I was in- uh, there, yeah. there are a few, but they're very remote in the North Cascades. Okay. And you go east, you know, to the Cabinet Yak area. Right. Again, the, the, the Yak area that uh, is, is uh, uh, being threatened by a, uh, a trail from glacier to the Pacific, going right through some of the best uh, female cub habitat in there. Uh, and there are probably less than 50 bears in, in the yak mm -hmm. in northwestern uh, Montana. And uh, the cabinets nearby, these all need to be connected and protected. There's uh, if they put a trail through there and with all the logging roads, there are just too many people with uh, guns and, and you can't put a hiking trail that goes through as in the Yak. I've, I've been working with them recently uh, and actually sent them quite a bit of money. Uh, I, uh, I think to put trails up into areas with high peaks, you're you're asking the extremists to go in there and either on mountain bikes or hiking to see how many peaks they can bag yes. in uh, five days. Yep. Well, if somebody's running up trails in grizzly bear country, you're asking for confrontation and conflict. You know, so right. those areas that we know are cubbing areas where females with cubs go to avoid big males. They should be protected with the best we can do. I agree. Yeah. And it even means maybe some areas we don't allow hiking. You know, most of the time hiking isn't very high impact, but it definitely is an impact. You know, people uh, going no into an area. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes a difference. There have been studies, good uh, peer-reviewed studies that show the, the impact of people walking through from, uh, from little passerine birds through to elk and deer and whatever. Uh, Trails have their effect and it's pretty hard. You know, we say, oh, well, they're just walking through and they're gonna be camping there. Well, if they camp there, then they've got food with them. So that's an attractant. Yep. Then the next thing you'll have, they're mountain bikes. And I noticed recently there's now 
the battery powered mountain bike. Oh, and yeah. uh, if you watch any of these uh, hill climbers, man, they, these guys, uh, if they don't kill themselves running into rocks and trees, <laughs> they're going to kill themselves running into a grizzly bear. Yep. Well, that's the thing. When you're going that fast, you surprise these animals. These animals don't really want anything to do with us for the most part. And if they know we're coming, they want to get out of the way. But if you surprise them around a bend, you know, that's what happened with that fellow in Utah recently with that viral video and the cougar. He basically he was going for a trail run and then he actually saw the, the cubs or pups or whatever you call them. And he actually moved towards them. And it's like, well, of course, the mom is going to be upset. Yeah. Yeah. And I watched a video where the guy walked away from the cat and it kept running towards him one. and hitting the ground. And that guy didn't know whether to wind his watch or poop. You know, he yes. uh, he was totally lost. But oh. the thing finally went back to its cub, but it trailed and it looked like a half a mile, you know, down the road. You probably yep. watched it, too. I did. Yeah, that was the one I was talking about. But yeah, they said that yeah. this is the cougar stalking him. And it wasn't stalking him. It was it was escorting him out of the area away exactly. from his from his babies yeah. so, or her yeah. babies. It, yeah. Yeah. It but, was uh, it was a defensive maneuver on the cat's part. Exactly. And she used her paws like a raccoon does when it uh, stomps at you. you know? I know that was, that yeah. was the most uh, surprising part of the video, just the motions it was making. But unfortunately for a lot of folks that, that reinforces, Oh yeah, these dangerous predators, we have to kill them and, and that sort of stuff. And then realizing this, it, it just wanted them gone. There's ways for us to deal with that. So I walk every single week in the wilderness and, and sometimes literally in the wilderness, but usually just in wild areas. And I'm in bear country all the time, black bear country. But, you know, I, I make little noises, you know, a clap in my yeah. hands and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And the thing is, actually, for me, and we'll get back to grizzly bear habitat in a second, but I had seen I've probably seen maybe a dozen or so bears in the wild and, and stuff like that. Since I moved to Colorado, even though I hike every single week. Um, I, for like the last seven years, I, I didn't see one bear because I, I kind of make noise and I can sort of sense when there's better bear habitat and not, but what happened was the, it was, uh, two months ago or so there was this, uh, it's a state wildlife area it's called, and it was actually closed down. No one was supposed to hike there. No one, hardly anyone does anyway, but no one was supposed to, because I was something to do with fire danger nearby. And I was like, I'm going to still hike there. Sorry. Like we had a little snowfall. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, there's, I'm, I'm going to go out there. And, but it was silent and no one was out there. And then I was going on an area that was kind of off trail. And um, then I saw uh, three miles out, I saw some tracks and some prints, which I thought were human. Then I looked closer. Those are, those are bear. Okay. Interesting. But somehow stupidly in my mind, instead of being like time to turn back, I sort of, <laughs> I followed the prints for a little bit. And then I was like, then I caught myself like, dude, what are you doing? This is, this is not a wise idea. You're not afraid of bear, but you don't follow a bear. And so, but I wanted to go to this one area that was up this saddle and that was kind of where the tracks were going. And I had this idea to connect to this other trail that I knew of. And I'm like, let me go a little further, but let me just kind of do a scan. And then standing majestically on this boulder about, I don't know, I want to say 50 feet away. I swear it was the biggest black bear I've ever seen. It maybe was my, my surprise, but it was a cinnamon colored black bear yeah. and it was bulked up because it was right before the winter. And Shit. I don't know if it saw me or not. 
Um, I definitely left, you know, I backed away and I went downhill and I kept going for a while. I have a feeling that even if it's, it didn't care about me, it, it wasn't, you know, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was, it, it was amazing. It's bulked up. It's not likely to prey on you. There's yeah. there's can be dangerous. And uh, I think it, it makes sense to carry bear spray. And if, if you feel better, carry a, a stick or even a spear, if you like, it's amazing that what will, uh, push an animal away. I, I just had a letter from a guy uh, in British Columbia who was riding along a trail and he came upon a grizzly bear and the grizzly kept approaching him, kept approaching him. I think it was a, a, a young nail that was probably short on food and damned hungry. Yeah. And it came up to him and he ended up throwing his bicycle at it because it kept coming closer. And it got past the bicycle and grabbed him by the leg. And he, smart guy that he was, he takes his thumb and rams it in the bear's eye. Mm -hmm. And the bear backed off. And then it came back at him again. Reese fastened onto his, uh, his groin and, and started dragging him into the woods. And he got his pocket knife out and stabbed the bear in the neck. And blood comes gushing out. And the guy was on a logging road and he rode five kilometers to a, a logging camp that had people active there. And they called in a chapter and the guy went to the hospital. They had to rebuild his femoral artery in his leg, but he survived perfectly. And it was only because he had the sense to fight the bear off. Right. The, the conservation officers went in, found the bear and uh, shot it. Uh, I think there were four of them, as I recall. And then they found the uh, knife uh, mark in the bear's throat. So yeah. it was definitely that bear. But, so was, it, was that a black bear? Or, or no, it was no, a grizzly. Was I'm grizzly. pretty sure it was a grizzly. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a male. They got a lot of information off it, of course, after they shot it. But, right. uh, you know, young males are the ones that get into trouble because they're trying to find a territory. They're getting sure. their ass kicked by dominant bears and uh they can be cheeky and dangerous i've uh, yelled them off in uh in uh, coastal bc they they weren't a threat but uh i had to group my people together and we just screamed at this bear until it got bored but it kept circling us he just wanted to see whether there was maybe a lunch or two in there sure <laughs> but yeah you have to keep like you do you keep your head and uh and realize that uh, you you talk the animal off. Some people have beaten black bears off with, uh, yep. you know, fly rods or throwing stones at them for that matter. Yep. Yeah. It's funny because I carry bear spray just because it's like an easy thing to do. And then I don't really have to think about it. Um, that was literally the one day in like seven years where I didn't have my bear spray. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. It was like... <laughs> Yeah, Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law. Eh? Well, because the snow had come, and I was like, oh, they're probably hibernating as if the first snowfall, they just drop into the ground. Of course, that's not true. And, and you would probably know better than I do that. So black bear don't quite hibernate the way grizzly do, right? Is that true? They, they Well, it depends on the habitat. If it's low elevation and mild, like uh, along the coastal rainforests, uh, they often don't. Some of the grizzlies in Yellowstone or in Kodiak Island, uh, they don't uh, hibernate. I think it's a combination of uh, 
how cold it is and how much food there is available. Okay. Part of the reason I, they go into uh, dens and hibernate is because they can't make a living outside and they've got all our stored fat right. uh, ready for them. Right. Because if they run out of stored fat, then they starve to death or have to come out early and then maybe they'll starve when they come out early. So. Yeah, yeah, that's rough for them. So in the, in the continental US, so we, we've got grizzly in, like you say, some of these remote areas in northern Washington, Montana and uh, Wyoming. And that a little bit of Idaho, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lots of habitat in central, uh, central, Wyoming, uh, central Idaho okay. and uh, northern Idaho. But the bears, uh, the sources of those bears are so far away that... Uh, uh, Even though there's good habitat, it would have to be repopulated by transplants. Okay. And I hope that they take some so-called problem bears instead of euthanizing them, stick them in those areas. Because if you get them far enough away, right. they're not going to they're not going to come back. But you can't start a population with three animals. You know? okay. Yeah, it has yeah. to be a real introduction, like the wolves in Yellowstone, for example. But so your focus mostly has been in British Columbia, and that is basically where the well, biggest population. I, I started with black bears in Alberta. I was a wildlife biologist uh, trying to protect bee yards, and we did the electric fence and aversive conditioning experiments there uh, with government money helping the beekeepers. And then uh, I went on staff at uh, Utah State as faculty member, and that's when I had my accident. And uh, the student that was with me not only saved my life, but he uh, went on to Yosemite. The Park Service got us a study in Yosemite where we developed the uh, backpack container. That was my idea to use a piece of uh, polyethylene pipe and put caps on it, put the food inside and leave it out for black bears and be damned if it wasn't 99% successful. And uh, Garcia machines started building them. You've probably seen these uh, backpack uh, containers, bear truth containers that have a lid that you open with a coin. Right. And uh, they've sold uh, tens of thousands of them. Huh. I had a friend in Denali Park that said uh, when they introduced the, uh, they required people to hike uh, that were hiking in Denali to uh, carry one of these. And he said, within less than a year, the Grizzlies quit following people because huh. they never got rewarded. Okay. So yep. I always feel like I saved a few lives uh, by developing that. But I, uh, I got the idea watching a video of the uh, young lions trying to break into an ostrich egg and they kept chomping at it, but their <laughs> teeth slid off. And I thought, oh. Let's develop a big ostrich egg. Well, we had a cylindrical egg and it, uh, it worked uh, quite well. That's excellent. Yeah, so we can, we can outsmart them in ways that protects both us and them, which, right. is, which is a good thing. I mean, they're, they're plenty smart, but we tend to use our intelligence to, to do not great things. Like, oh, look, we're going to kill them with our high-powered rifles. It's like, well, we can also use our intelligence to say, here's what they're going for. Let's remove that. Now we have less of a reason to have conflict. And that's a beautiful yep. use of human intelligence. So absolutely. I absolutely. support that. So, yeah. so Alaska obviously is, is an other area where they are extremely uh, populous, but um, yeah, I was in British Columbia. Well, I was in Vancouver Island. I believe Vancouver Island does not have 
grizzly, but it's the coastal. No. So like that's great, right. Great bear. Yeah, and, the odd one that swims across from the islands, but it's very unusual. Yeah. I did a lot of work north of uh, Candle River on the mainland. There's a, a bear viewing site there that has uh, 40 or 50 bears feeding on salmon. And uh, it was a great place to do research. We, uh, we did some studies of bear uh, people interaction. And uh, the surprising thing about bear viewing with that study was uh, my students showed that where people are in a stand watching bears, the females eat about twice as much because males do not come in near people. And uh, so the females realized that that the bear viewing people were creating a refuge for them. Then they didn't have to be as vigilant and they could fish longer. So he uh, quantified the, the uh, extra amount of salmon per day that females with cubs were getting. It was really a positive effect of bear viewing. And a lot of people say, oh, we don't need bear viewing because it drives the bears away from where they want to feed. Well, depends how it's done. And if you're on a salmon stream, it has almost no effect unless you get mobs and mobs of people walking around the ground and that kind of stuff. Yeah, speaking of which, so Yellowstone, there are a lot of people that go to Yellowstone. So is that whole concept of national park viewing of wildlife with crowds, is that does that do more good than harm or more harm than good? What do you think? Well, I think they're, they've changed their philosophy on uh, habituated bears near the road. There's a lot of good habitat for bears near roads because the roads are in the low elevation, meadowy area, not rock and ice. Yep. And uh, the big problem is uh, bear jams. You get a couple of hundred cars all stacked up because people are jumping out of their cars with their cameras. Yep. But it's, it's much more positive now because the bears are uh, accustomed or habituated to people. The, the people, the rangers, uh, and they have, I don't know, 20 to 40 volunteers that go out to these places and try and control human behavior. It's a human behavior that needs managing. Yes. But it's, it's working out quite well. The problem is the natural foods in uh, Yellowstone, because the loss of the uh, Yellowstone cutthroat trout and the uh, white dark pine seeds and the elk numbers are down, the bears are leaving. Uh, the park and, and the federal biologists like to say that they're up to carrying capacity, but the food uh, supply has dropped down and the bears are moving out on the livestock and hunter gut piles. Huh. And therefore, they're not protected anymore. So the end result of uh, the loss of natural foods in Yellowstone for bears uh, is them being exposed to more lethal people. And yes. so the mortality is high. Uh, a lot of people mm -hmm. think that 600, 700 bears is, uh, is enough and it meets the technical guidelines of the recovery. But the weird thing, and you probably just followed this, the weird thing is the states to the east, Wyoming uh, and Montana and Idaho, when they realized that uh, the delisting was occurring, they were ready to start uh, a hunting program. And I thought, 
where's the logic of this, that you barely recover a population and all of a sudden you start killing them again? Yep. And they're dying in huge numbers. And the, the federal government just uh, permitted, I think, over a 10-year period to kill, uh, allowed, uh, permitted 75 grizzlies to be killed. Uh -huh. And places like the Upper Green River, where grizzlies are coming in and it's uh, loaded with, with uh, leases for uh, livestock grazing, there's a real conflict there. So some of those uh, leases ought to be pulled and uh, let the cattlemen go to other locations, open up other leases someplace else. Yep. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me, killing, killing the bears when they come into wild habitat is, uh, is a uh, formula for the destruction of the bear and the stopping of them connecting to other wild habitat. So. That's that's for we sure. We need to protect those uh, corridors. Right. So if we were to enact policy, what would that look like? And then who would be a potential champion in Congress or wherever for that policy? Uh, that, that's a tough one because <laughs> uh, the ranchers are well organized and some of them are corporate ranchers and yep. they're donating large amounts of money to yep. politicians. So we got a conflict there. I think what we have to work on is uh, the Forest Service to start pulling some of the leases and, mm -hmm. and telling those people either buy the people out uh, and close the lease because it's on a corridor. So I think it's, it comes back again to good science, environmental lawyers, and uh, just uh, sue the bastards. Uh, Mm -hmm. is, is my attitude these days, if uh, people are doing things like overgrazing or shooting bears in wild habitat uh, with the idea of protecting their livestock, uh, that should go into the courts, I think. Yep. And, and the, the environmental lawyers are, are doing marvelous things, just showing that the Forest Service isn't living up to its mandate. The, yeah. the way they study degradation from cattle. Dr. John Carter uh, in Southern Idaho has been working on this for 20 years with uh, Yellowstone to Uinda's organization, which he founded. And uh, he just shows up with just impeccable data on yep. the impacts of grazing. Of and the Forest Service fights them, but uh, they they end up having to change. Uh, but I don't know that uh, congressmen are going to uh, respond against cattlemen. Uh, we, yep. need to, we need to get more wilderness land. Land that's been being considered for wilderness should actually be turned into wilderness. And that's where the public can get involved. Just demand that the original plans for wilderness area be carried out and protected. That's for sure. And yeah, I don't know if the Forest Service has ever really been taking its role very seriously or, or may, of course, a lot of those folks feel like they're doing the right thing and they're finding balance. But here's the thing. If we had the whole continent to start from scratch, sure, partition some areas, but we, do, we have these little slivers of land left. We can't keep splitting the baby, as they call it. And exactly. You know, uh, being in Utah so long, and I, I got to love and study uh, greater sage grouse, mm -hmm. and I finally realized 
that there was not one acre of land, public land, that wasn't being grazed. And in Utah, it's gone on for 150 years. Yep. So when they talk about habitat preference for sage grouse, there isn't even the best habitat left. There's no acre of land that's that's free of grazing over a historical period of land yep. of, of time. So that's amazing to me that uh, that the landscape and the plant communities can be go through uh, being trashed originally. I mean, one of the reasons the Forest Service was set up was that mm -hmm. there was so much landslides and degradation from uh, from sheep and cattle. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, you back in the 1850s, you had resident sheep on the mountains and then somebody with a mobile herd of 10,000 sheep would come through the same countryside. It was really yeah. de degraded, I guess I'd say. So <clears throat> we have this historical overgrazing. People say, oh, well, we have marine science now. We know how to manage. Well, you go out and see how it's done. I'm sorry. It is not done in a way that protects land for sage growth. Just because you have sagebrush doesn't mean that the understory under the sage isn't decimated for chicks. Chicks live on insects, and the insects live on fords or what we'd call wildflowers, and they're all chewed out by the by the livestock. So, bingo. I've seen a lot of livestock damage in wild areas. Uh, one area is Marble Mountain Wilderness in Colorado or California near the border of Oregon. And I'm pretty sure, I'm almost 100% sure we were in wilderness, but they still would actually let some cattle in. I, I don't know how, why that was or how that was, but in Utah, yeah. I've definitely seen. So I went through, so um, any of the national monuments there, uh, they, you know, they say things like, you know, don't walk on the, uh, the, what are they called? The cryptosporidium, don't walk on any, yeah. which I agree, don't walk on it. It's this uh, biota yeah. that's really important. And then meanwhile, but we're gonna have what? 1500 pound monsters walking through with their four legs poking <laughs> through everything. It's like, here I am hopping yeah. from rock to rock, which fine, I'm, and then they're just like, and you know, eating out everything, destroying the, uh, taking a shit in the little tiny bit of a uh, watersheds. Like and I was in the Bears Ears National Monument because I was researching a story about, so Trump opened it up to uh, potential oil extraction. And then I went in there, I'm like, well, the cows are doing plenty of damage as it is. Like that's yeah. almost maybe a bigger issue than, and I'm not supporting the oil extraction, of course, but we ignore no, but they some had things. To, they had to compromise uh, with the cattle cattle people, unfortunately. And that, uh, that led to some bad outcomes. And now they what, they've cut it in half the bear's ears, so. Yep. It's, uh, it's not in good shape. No, it's not. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've come out many times in favor of public land should be basically wilderness areas. And yeah, we should be, we should be getting cows off public lands. Uh, the problem though, with of course, bears is that they don't <laughs> pay attention to, uh, designations of landscapes. So Absolutely. they migrate yeah. across private lands, but it can be argued that they are a public, if you want to go down that road, they are a public resource. So no matter where they are at the time, you don't get to kill them. Right. Should right. be that way, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had this recent one in the act, a female was shot and they 
parsley dressed it and then massacred the carcass and left it on a driveway. Mm. And the uh, NGOs have put together $25,000 reward to find out who did this. Because yeah. it was just a case of uh, plain old vandalism. So, yeah. It's, the other thing that we sad. might mention too is that where there's black bear hunting, it should probably be stopped where we're in, when you're in grizzly country because people bait through black bears and that can bring grizzlies in or uh, some black bear hunters can't tell the difference from a small grizzly from a black bear and they end mm. up shooting uh, a uh, protected species. So mm. if we stop black bear hunting in areas that have grizzly bears, that would... Uh, reduce the mortality too. They're a keystone predator. We take them out of the equation. Uh, there, there's no telling what, what happens. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think all the work that you're doing is extremely important and really thank you for it. Well, thank you. And you're uh, really important in the chain with uh, protecting of wild uh, land and wild animals. Thanks, Joss. Very of course. Much yeah. Well, really appreciate it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing and your work. And do you do you have any way uh, or information that you want to get out in terms of any books or or ways? To find uh, yes, out what I'd like doing? to mention uh, the book that uh, came out uh, about a year ago that I wrote called uh, "One of Us: A Biologist Walk Among Bears," and it can be uh, purchased from me directly or through Amazon or. Uh, you can request it through bookstores. It's basically all about bear behavior, bear conflict. Uh, there's a couple of chapters on my accident that explains how that happened, but mostly it's about uh, uh, bear behavior that I've witnessed over my life and ends up with a little bit of uh, politics and how we can work to make things better for bears. Great. Thank, well, you, for, thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, we'll link to that in the description of the podcast. So if you're listening to this, you can pick up that book right now. So uh, thanks again, Barry. Great. Thank you, Josh. Bye for now. Bye now. Happy New Year to you. Same to you. Thank you.